the Jewish views on White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer's comments, insensitive or ignorant. American political commentator Carol Gould tells us. MasterChef finalist Emma Spitzer talks about her new cookbook, Fresh Bold Flavors from a Jewish Kitchen, and the UJS Awards 2017. Find out who the winners were from the Union of Jewish Students President Josh Seekler. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The White House Press Secretary, Sean Spicer, has apologised for making an insensitive reference to the Holocaust in comments about Syrian President Bashar Assad, who the US administration says used chemical weapons on his own people last week. Mr Spicer said that even Hitler didn't sink to using chemical weapons in World War II. Later, in an email to reporters, he said he wasn't trying to lessen the horrendous nature of the Holocaust. The Anne Frank Centre said Donald Trump should fire Sean Spicer for engaging in Holocaust denial. Officers from the Metropolitan Police have interviewed a man who complained that former London Mayor Ken Livingston broke the law by making his comments about Hitler and Zionism, which he said incited racial hatred against Jews. Andrew Lavery, who's a nurse, quit the Labour Party last year. He made his complaint the day after Labour's National Constitutional Committee found Livingston guilty of bringing the party into disrepute, but failed to expel him, though he is suspended from the party for another year. Sharon Berger from Kenton in North London has lost her fight against acute myeloid leukaemia at the age of 65. Mrs Berger's family became high profile as they led a sustained campaign in conjunction with the Anthony Nolan Trust to find a stem cell donor for her. The Jewish community rallied round and an anonymous match was found. Mrs Berger's transplant in 2013 seemed to work at first, but the cancer returned and she sadly died last week. Two Holocaust memorials in Greece have been vandalised. One was in Kavala in the north of the country, where marble veneer was smashed with hammers. The monument commemorates 1,500 Jews from the city who died in Nazi death camps. And a memorial in Arta in northwest Greece was damaged with paint. About 350 Jews from Arta were sent to Auschwitz, where most died. And finally, you can now wander the streets of ancient Jerusalem, after archaeologists recreated the city at the time of King Herod in a virtual reality headset. For a modest £1.59, the user can buy the Lithodomos app and then experience Market Streets, the Western Wall and the Temple Precinct from 2,000 years ago. That's it from me. Here's the sport with Andrew. Thank you very much, Viv. Raiders A booked their place in the final of this season's Peter Morrison Trophy, but only after beating Lions Masters with a controversial penalty. David Dinkins scored the decisive spot kick, but Masters manager Dan Jacobs was far from happy, calling it the softest of penalties. There was better news though for the Lions Hearts League side, as they're now just one win away from completing an historic League and Cup treble. Beating FC Lemsford 4-0 in their Aubrey Cup semi-final, they will also have home advantage on their side in the May 7th final against Letchworth Garden City, with it being staged at Rowley Lane. And finally, Israel has moved a step closer to reaching the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup in France, topping their preliminary round group by beating Lithuania, Andorra and Moldova, they now join the 30 top-ranked teams in the qualifying group stage draw. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.org.
jewishmoney.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave, if not a rather croaky one, so do excuse me. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Justin, let's start off, as we always do, with the front page. And the headline reads, Revealed, UK's Israeli Brain Drain. That's right. Jewish News has got hold of some statistics which show that there have been a 32% reduction in the number of Israeli students in British higher education over the last eight years. The the biggest fall uh, has taken place in the last five years. And obviously that coincides with a focus on campus, concern about what's going on in campus in terms of the way that Israel is treated And so people are speculating, including the British ambassador, David Quarry, that this could be having an impact on people wanting to come and study here. But there's a note of caution here. We don't know that that is the biggest factor here. And and other people, including Stand With Us, Tamir Oren, who is currently studying for an MBA in London, has suggested that, that other factors may be bigger here. For example, American universities doing more to attract Israeli students, but he's suggesting there's a very positive future potentially for Israeli students in the UK. The, the currency factor, Brexit, more cooperation between universities and in the science sector post-Brexit. So we'll see how these figures go. I suppose I wouldn't really be doing my job if I didn't ask the question, does it matter? Does it matter? I mean, the temperature's clearly rising on campus. I'd like to think that it hasn't got to do with the anti-Semitism and the vitriol that a lot of Jewish people and Jewish students have to face on campus. But building bridges at a student level is about building bridges for the future, isn't it? If you're an Israeli and you're studying in London or you're a, a Londoner studying in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, you are making connections, cultural connections, economic connections for the future, laying foundations. So it may not matter today, but in the years to come. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, hopefully with a little bit of luck, this is just a temporary blip and Israeli students will be tempted to come back in one way or another. On the next page, we're going to look inside the paper a little sooner because we're going to come back to the front page in just a moment. Sean Spicer, I should imagine that that's a name now that most people in the Jewish community are familiar with after this week and especially the week that he's had. He is, of course, the White House press secretary and he features on page two, doesn't he? Yeah, the gaff-prone White House press secretary, a story that if people weren't familiar with Sean Spicer a week ago, they certainly are now. In his wisdom, he decided in a conversation about... Assad and his use of chemical weapons to compare Hitler to Assad, suggesting that perhaps the Nazi dictator wasn't as bad because he never used poisonous gas. Jaw-dropping that one. Now, I don't think there's any malicious intent here. I've been having a debate over the, the last few days with Justin to my right on this one. I just think it's stupefying stupidity and ignorance on the part of the White House here. There's nothing malicious. If you're going to have a dangerous lightweight as president, this sort of stuff is going to happen. It's something they've repeated time and again. Of course, there was the Holocaust Memorial Day message from the White House in January that omitted any mention of Jews. There was the Kellyanne Conway incident when she suggested there had been an appalling terrorist attack in Bowling Green where no such attack or no such place exists. So I just think this is a man clearly out of his depth, a man who needs to be thinking articulately and speaking articulately and can do neither. The man, as I am clearly doing now, getting his words in a muddle. So not qualified. Yes, but the difference is, of course, that you're not necessarily a representative for one of the most powerful organisations slash governments in the world. So 
even if you do get your words muddled, it mm. probably isn't ideal to have the press secretary for the White House get his words muddled. It's interesting, though, that in terms that you actually sort of stated he never said that Hitler didn't use poisonous gas. But more specifically, I thought his wording was that even Hitler didn't stoop to using chemical weapons. And could that just be, as you've already identified, more of a potential ignorance on his part as opposed to actually trying to be malicious as a lot of people have been worried that he has been in the course of saying this? Possibly. He went obviously out of his way to make a comparison there where there wasn't one. As Richard said, I just think there's a pattern of behaviour here, a use of the uh, of the Holocaust in terms that it shouldn't be used in, and the fact that there was this message from the White House within days of Donald Trump coming to power, which didn't feature uh, mention of anti-Semitism or Jews, and now this in such a quick succession, it causes a worry. And, and, and yes, it probably is down to, to ignorance and, 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 and stupidity, but there's a pattern developing here, unfortunately. I have some sympathy for Sean Spicer, and here's a man who has to, every day in the daily press briefings at the White House, has to make sense of what Donald Trump is saying and thinking. Now, Donald Trump can't make sense of what he's saying and thinking, so quite how he, with the, with the White House press corps, can actually talk in, in clear and concise manner when he's second-guessing a lot of the things that the president is saying. It's an impossible task. I strongly suspect that there aren't many people who envy Sean Spicer's position. Let's move on now to page five and terribly sad story. We heard it in the news just now with Viv. Sharon Berger has lost her rather brave and very public battle with leukemia. Yeah, it's a, an unfortunate story that we've had to finally run this week. And Johnny Berger, the son of of Sharon, can speak in a lot more personal and eloquent terms than, than I'll be able to. And he's written a piece in this week's paper about how there was an empty seat at the family's Seder this week. Sharon Berger has sadly passed away of leukaemia. She was the inspiration behind the Spit for Mum campaign, which saw, a, a, I think, 1,700% rise in people coming forward from the Jewish community. That clearly is a a fine legacy and our thoughts go to the family. It's absolutely shocking, especially as that kind of percentage increase that we've spoken about just now in terms of how many did come forward. I was one of those who registered, as I know all of the Jewish News staff were as well. And it just feels so unfair that despite that drive, she still hasn't managed to survive. Yeah, I, I think I remember a story about areas of North London, Northwest London, showing the greatest number of people registering over a period of time when that campaign was first launched by Johnny and his family. I think it clearly is something that the, he and, and and his relatives have to hold on to now. The fact that she will unquestionably, in her own tragic way, have helped many other people to survive. So. Definitely. That's one legacy that they can hopefully be very, very proud of indeed. Okay, well, let's go back to the front page because on the front page you have images of the community's top young talent. This is, well, last week we saw 18 under 18. This is your 30 under 30. Yep, identifying the 30 individuals under the age of 30 set to shape the community in the years, decades to come. These are people in all sorts of areas from education, charity, entertainment, politics, communally organised and at the centre of Jewish life. It's incredible going through this list, how many people in such a tender age bracket, you know, under 30, I mean, going back to my 20s, I, I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do for my whole career, let alone driving a community forward. These are people who really are at the epicentre of British Jewish life. 
30 to 21 revealed this week and in two weeks time on our thousandth edition which is something i'm sure we'll talk about next week and of course the week after we will reveal our top 10 that's very exciting okay well we look forward to finding out more about them just finally justin how was the process in terms of these winners chosen as it were if winners is indeed the right term About a few months ago, we asked people to nominate their heroes, if you like, within the community, people that are either currently shaping the direction of the community or are are set to do so. Following on from the success of our 40 under 40 list a few years back, we then put together a panel of experts within the community who ranked everyone individually. Then we all came together for a very delicious meal at Kaifeng, where we decided finally on on the ranking and we, we kind of tweaked bits and pieces to make sure that everyone was in the right place and everyone was happy with the list. And yeah, we started revealing this week. We'll continue next week and into the into the third week. And this I have to say is one of the most successful kind of concepts I would say that the paper's been involved in in its 20-year history. The amount of excitement and anticipation that it garners every time online and in reality is just fantastic. Terrific. Okay, well, thank you both very much indeed. I'm sure other Chinese restaurants are available, by the way, as well. Thank you both. That's where we have to leave it for this look at the Jewish news for this week. And don't forget, you can pick up your copy every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. As you've just been hearing, Sean Spicer has apologised for making a reference to the Holocaust in comments about Syrian President Bashar Assad's use of chemical weapons. Whilst addressing the Syrian crisis, the White House press secretary said, we didn't use chemical weapons in World War II, adding someone as despicable as Hitler didn't even sink to using chemical weapons. Mr Spicer's comments have sparked mixed reactions and has even led to calls for his dismissal. I've been speaking to American political commentator Carol Gould to get her take on this. I started by asking Carol, is this a fuss over nothing? What he said was so disgusting that it's enough to turn your stomach. Remember, I'm American, so that gives me a slightly different perspective from British people watching this on BBC, and there have been a lot of talking heads. First of all, there was a One point I wanted to make to you, Phil, which is, now this is a long time ago, but when I was growing up in the U.S., every 11th grader, which is is just before, it's the penultimate year of high school, before you go to university. So So that would be our year 11 here. Yeah. It'd be our year 11 here. 16 or 17. You could not matriculate in my day. Maybe different now in high school across the U.S., if you did not see a film that was on the curriculum and required viewing called Night and Fog by Alain René, which was an utterly horrific, graphic, but very brilliant film about the Holocaust. So every kid had to see it. The parents couldn't get them excused. And it depicts the worst aspects of the German genocide against the Jews during World War II. And I remember a couple of girls fainted. One had to be sick and had to run to the loo. Particularly the ones who were more affected than anybody else were the African-American girls in my class. And I wonder if Sean Spicer is of a generation now that doesn't have to learn about the Holocaust in 11th grade in the United States educational system. I guess he's about 40. I'm 63. Perhaps he doesn't. But I ha- this sounds arrogant. But I think 
American young people, the American educational system, and older people sitting around the dinner table, even non-Jewish people, are aware of the Nazi Holocaust. There are still elderly men who served in World War II in the U.S. Army who remember the cruelty of the Germans, not just at the camps, but being soldiers and being taken prisoner. So I'm, I'm astounded that Sean Spicer, an American, can show such utter ignorance of every aspect of the Shoah. But is it utter ignorance or was it a bit of a slip? I think that when people say that, oh, you knew what he meant, if, if they're defending him, that's one of the first things that we've heard, isn't it? Oh, you know what he meant. But he was making a comparison, no. even if it was no, a bizarre no, comparison. No, no, to me, maybe it is because I'm American. I've lived here 41 years in the UK continuously. I'm a British citizen. But maybe it's because my American. It's my DNA. I listen to him and I think, this man is, how can I put it? He, I have been to dinner parties in the UK over the past 40 years where some people didn't know. I don't have to announce I'm Jewish. Quote, unquote, I don't think I look Jewish. Maybe I do. But... I'm an American. I'm their guest. And there have been occasions when I've been with people who are borderline followers of the Dowager Lady Birdwood, British people who are really seriously anti-Semitic, who use that kind of language, Phil, that, oh, well, Hitler, um, he he wasn't as bad as so-and-so. And, oh, he had these centers where, uh, where we think Jews were sent. A friend of mine who's an Oxford graduate Actually, she rang me and she said, you'll be good at this. You're, you're really good on history when I see you on the BBC. You always have an answer for everything. Were Jews actually killed in German Holocaust centers? And I said, oh, please, now you're doing it. They were concentration camps. They were death camps. Bergen-Belsen. Okay, Dachau, I believe, was in Austria. Of course, Auschwitz was in Poland. But please, don't say, oh, were Jews killed? You'd be amazed, Phil, how many non-Jewish friends of mine here of all ages have absolutely no knowledge whatsoever of the Shoah. After all, they don't go to Jewish schools. They don't necessarily socialize or have Friday night dinner with Jewish friends. I think Sean Spicer is of that ilk. Okay, I, well, I, th- I, th- I think it was malevolent. It wasn't just being dumb. Well, I think that we have established that you're not his biggest fan. But does this mean then in that case that the calls that various key people are making saying that they would like to see President Trump dismiss Sean Spicer, do you believe that that is the right course of action for what could have just been one mistake? Oh, he should have been fired about an hour after this happened, as far as I'm concerned. And I'm not a Trump traducer. I've actually, over the past few months, been yelled at because I'm, I will say, well, look, Bernie Sanders and Trump agree on NAFTA, on re- withdrawing from TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, on getting rid of Big Pharma, breaking it down, on free tuition for state college students. So I've not been someone who says Trump is a Nazi, Trump is awful, but I am glad that he dismissed Steve Bannon from the National Security Council. I'm afraid that my assessment of this, his press conference is that he is the first American I've ever seen talk the way British people have for 40 years. It's in my book, my book, Don't Tread on Me, Anti-Americanism Abroad, and it's got a lot of chapters, chapters about British anti-Semitism. I mean, look at what happened at Oxford when 
the the Chronicles of Narnia author, C.S. Lewis, who married a Jewish woman, and the uh, and the play Shadowlands and the film with Anthony Hopkins and Deborah Winger chose the endemic uh, anti-Semitism at Oxford. That the dons, educated men were absolutely apoplectic that he'd brought a Jewess into the Oxford milieu. Uh, so, and, and I could just go on and on and on. I mean, someone once said to me, oh, up in Norfolk, we've never seen a Jew. Do you really have horns? I'm not joking. I'm not joking, Phil. And, oh, you have all these holidays where you stuff your faces nonstop. So that's why I was shocked because Americans tend not to say that. Americans that I went to school with and that I still social with whom I socialize are educated enough and knowledgeable enough, non-Jews, not to say these idiotic things. What do you believe that the remedy is in terms of moving forward? Do you think that there should be a discipline in terms against Sean Spicer? Do you think that it would be better if he demonstrated that he was trying to better educate himself as far as what did happen in the Shoah? What would you like to see happen? As Chelsea Clinton said, she tweeted, I think he needs to visit the Holocaust Museum, which is a few yards from the White House. Barbara Streisand said, I agree with her. She thinks he should be fired. But when I was at school, there were some girls who were first-generation Polish and Ukrainian, non-Jewish, And one of them, her father drove me home one evening. He said, you know, the Jews get punished every other generation or so. You were punished during the Holocaust because you killed our savior. And you will be punished again. And the trouble is you think you're Americans, but you're not. And I had this from a couple of girls who were children of immigrants, not what I call American Mayflower era or older generation Americans, but but you're not really American, Carol. You're Jewish. And that's the mentality that Sean Spicer was showing. And that's what shocked and surprised me. American political commentator Carol Gould talking to me there about comments made by White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer this week. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by retired audiobook reader Denise Asserson and Jewish radio broadcaster Daniel Musikant. They'll be discussing whether or not a new virtual reality application designed to recreate the times of the Jerusalem Temple is in any way disrespectful. Plus, Tony Honickberg will be speaking to Josh Seetler about the UJS Student Awards 2017. But first, can you cook? And who taught you how? Perhaps you have recipes that have been handed down and have been in the family for years. If you want to add to your repertoire, then MasterChef finalist Emma Spitzer's new book might be able to help you with that. It's called Fresh, Bold Flavours from a Jewish Kitchen, and arts editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to Emma to find out more about it. Kate started by asking Emma to tell us when she first realised she could cook. I guess MasterChef was the most telling experience in terms of having a professional critique of my food. I mean, my friends and family had always been really complimentary about my food, but you never know whether they're just doing that to be nice. I knew I could cook, but it was to what level and could I please a more professional uh, critic, if you like. And for those people who may not know what MasterChef is, what's the idea of it and what did you get out of it? So MasterChef Amateurs, which is what I did, is really the progression of a home cook's journey. And for me, 
I'd watched the show for a number of years since it was MasterChef Goes Large in the 90s uh, when it was Lloyd Grossman. And at that point in time, I didn't really appreciate, you know, the enormity of it and what it could provide. But having followed it over the sort of the last 10 years, I thought, you know what, this is incredible because I love watching the journey of people who go on quite humble and not sure if I could really do this. And then by the end of it, they're cooking, you know, Michelin star food, which is incredible. So for me, I think I just wanted to, A, see if I could do it, see if they liked my food. And then it became, you know, the, the process became so much more than that. And how far could I push myself and how creative could I get? So it's an incredible journey, really is. How would you describe your cooking and yourself as a, as a chef or a cook? I'm never quite sure what the difference is. Yeah, I'm definitely not a chef. I think a chef is someone who's trained, who's gone through a professional qualification and probably works a hell of a lot harder than I do because a professional chef has to put in extraordinary hours and has maybe had to do quite a lot of basic and technical skills along the way. I am very much a home cook. I'm somebody who has taught myself through my love of flavours, my love of food. I'm a greedy person and that's definitely... <laughs> definitely helps. I don't believe that actually I'm any more capable than many other people out there. I think I've just developed a new level of confidence. So I, I really think that confidence is key in the kitchen. So you came off MasterChef and where did your your own cooking journey take you? I'm definitely exploring a new creative avenue. I'm playing with flavours more. I'm looking to create dishes which anybody else can cook, which in some ways, it's quite difficult because we have so many props nowadays to help us along the way. I myself went out and I got a sous vide and I got a Thermomix and all these very fancy kitchen gadgets which are designed to help you be a more precise cook. But when I did the book, it was very much about how would a home cook cook? What artillery do they have in the kitchen? And it's a lot more trial and error. So I really wanted to approach my recipes that I've started developing since the show that anybody could cook. Now that you mentioned your book, let's talk about it. It looks fabulous. It looks, it looks delicious on the front. Fress, it's called, which is gorgeous, to eat copiously and without restraint, which, you know, we all have to want to from time to time. It is it's a gorgeous book. Thank you. The recipes in them... Tell us a little bit, how are you inspired to write them? So there's a real combination of recipes in there. There are some which are from my heritage. So there's some that I grew up eating, things like golden chicken soup, you know, good Jewish girl. Of course, I had a good Jewish chicken soup recipe. Things like oxtail stew, schnitzel, roast chicken. Those are all sort of very classic dishes that I grew up with. And then I was very fortunate to have married my Sephardi husband, whose mother comes from Israel, and her extended family. So brothers, wives and sisters, husbands, you know, they all had something else to bring to the table. So I've got an incredible amount of dishes that are also from his heritage. And then there are dishes which I've put together myself, which are putting a modern twist on some of the more Jewish classics and just coming up with some really simple dishes, but carry a lot of flavour. So there's quite a lot of spice in there, but not heat spice, you know, spice using... Tasty spices. Absolutely. Mm. You know, there's one of my favourite recipes in the whole book is the preserved lemon butternut squash orzo risotto. Which wow, is, so a takes, lot of things going on there. Yeah, but you know what? It takes less than 20 minutes to get on the table. But things like preserved lemons, are they hard to get? Do no. you So you don't cook with things that you have to go shopping for for miles? Very, very few recipes in there will have a, an ingredient which is absolutely, you must have it. And if you can't get it, well, you know, I'm sorry, it won't work. I would say perhaps one in there has got a spice called amber spice, which is very much used throughout Israel. But actually, it's also an Indian spice called amcha powder, which is mango powder. And you can get that in any Indian supermarket, any Turkish supermarket. So, I mean, anything that I struggled to get myself didn't make the book. And of course, we've got 
you know, online shopping now. And so you can get pretty much anything. And if you can't, I've given you a substitute. Right. So it's actually quite accessible cooking. Absolutely. And what about for, uh, we'll start with the various eaters. I mean, I don't know how it drives you potty if people have these new food hang-ups. I mean, you, you know, the celiacs clearly that have a have an illness. But yeah. when people start having uh, intolerances, or do you, do you provide substitutes for them? I think you have to nowadays. I think as a cook, if I've done a supper club or a cookery class, you know, I have to adhere to tolerances. I'm quite intolerant of intolerances, I have to say, because if, again, like you said, if they're genuine, they're genuine. But I think we can create our own intolerances through, you know, worrying about not eating wheat because it might bloat us and things like that. Well, that's not really an intolerance. It's more of a kind of preference not to. And it does make it a lot more difficult as a, as a cook to, you know, to have to come up with something completely different from everything else. But but unfortunately, it's the you way have to it do goes. that. Yeah. I mean, some people, well, it's been said that they create their own intolerances by absolutely banning food groups. And then when yeah. they do have them, the system's not used to it. And yeah. it can. What about cooking for, uh, does your book provide for kids or do you not believe in separate kids' recipes and, and adults' recipes? You know, to a degree, I, I do say in the book that for me, I believe that kids' food is just a smaller portion. I'm quite militant at home about not cooking something for them and something for us and obviously it doesn't always work you know I know that the kids have got sensitive palates but my kids are always encouraged to try something new and nine times out of ten they'll like it I think the motto in my house is you've got to trust me kids would I give you something that wasn't nice but I think we are very much kind of in danger of of almost sort of telling ourselves what our kids don't want or they won't like that you often hear a mum saying they're not going to like that well actually the kids do really like things but they're perhaps not encouraged to try things that are a bit more adventurous or maybe they don't look as appealing because they've got green in them or, you know, it's not kind of... It's the word bits. Bits, bits, absolutely. Great word, Um, bits. It covers everything, doesn't it? From a sultana to a bit of parsley. Yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, I think to a degree I'm, uh, my kids will eat everything that I eat. And and if it's really spicy, then I'll give them a lot of yoghurt to dull it down or I just you know, won't serve that to them. But on the whole, 90% of the time, they eat what I eat. And what about the other end of the spectrum, cooking for seniors? They often go into homes and I I go into Jewish care homes and it, sometimes they say, you know, we would like something, not at Jewish care because the food's fabulous there, but in some places that it may be a bit bland. Yeah, I think... Do you think they get a raw deal to some extent? Possibly. I think I think a lot of cooks are quite afraid of using bold flavours because it might offend somebody or they might not like it. And I guess I understand to a degree there's nothing worse than creating a huge dish and then everybody turns around and says, oh gosh, it's too spicy or it's too, it's got too much flavour or it's, you know, it's not my style. So we're all worried about being... That's offended. more become stick in the mud, you know, I know what I like and I like yes, what I know. Yes, um, so it, I think it just becomes part of the norm. People think you know what I'm going for a safe option and the reality is is I mean I I, classic example is coming back to the risotto I served it to a friend and she said no I I really don't like I I, I don't like lemons you know I don't like lemon flavor and I said just just try it you know if you don't like it what's the worst you've taken one bite and she really liked it she said oh gosh I'm really surprised I think you just got to give it a chance give it a go and you know you'll surprise people so coming back to sort of you know older people I think give them some credit you know, give them something that's a little bit more powerful, maybe. Yes. You'd probably really and like a, it. But like you said, encourage people to try something absolutely, new. Absolutely. 
What about sort of bakery things? You often have people who are cooks, but they're not bakers or they make this distinction between the sort of the cooking and the baking. Do you do do both? I do do both. I think baking is a more complicated animal because it's quite technical. So you have less scope to be creative with baking. You know, you You have to to be be more precise with the measurements. Yeah. So you can't you could perhaps throw in some alternative flavours, but it's it's difficult to say, you know what, I'm going to do half the flour because actually that could really affect the process. So baking, I think perhaps more chemistry involved. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But again, I think it comes back to how much you love to do something. I I genuinely believe without wanting to sound a little bit flowery about it all. But I do believe that if you really love and enjoy doing something, it really translates into the foods. If you're terrified of baking, the likelihood is you're setting yourself up to fail because, you know, I think it really comes across in the food. I would say to anybody that's underconfident about baking, start with a really simple recipe, really simple and see how it goes and build from there. MasterChef finalist Emma Spitzer talking to arts editor Kate Fulton about her new cookbook, Fress, Bold Flavours from a Jewish Kitchen. For more information, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment will be this week's schmooze. Remember, we live stream the schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British summertime. The address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And we'll try and read out some of those comments as and when we get them. It's just one of a number of ways that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, all those details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, the UJS has hosted their annual student awards at a ceremony attended by more than 150 people. The Union of Jewish Students honoured those who take a leading role on British campuses. Community editor Diana Toman is away this week, so Tony Honickberg has been speaking to president of the UJS, Josh Seatler, to find out more. Tony started by asking Josh to tell us why the awards first started. The awards go back quite a while. These are the ninth UJS Student Awards. And they are to celebrate work that Jewish students do across the country. Often we don't always get to see some of the initiatives that happen, especially in places like Scotland and the smaller JSOCs around the country. They don't get the press and they don't get the sort of credit they deserve for some incredible initiatives and some incredible projects that they do across the board from political to social action to interfaith. There really are some unbelievable projects that go on. And how long have the awards gone on for? When, when, so this when is the ninth start? annual award. And you've had some interesting people over the years, I guess. Well, absolutely. Tell me more about this year's evening. It was very interesting. There were around 130 people, I think, maybe slightly more, mostly students that came from around the country, mostly current Jewish society presidents and committees. Many of them have been nominated. There was a nomination period, people nominated Jewish societies. Some awards were just for individuals, and they were nominated over a few-week period, and then those that were nominated and those that were on committees came to the evening. There was dinner. There was like a reception beforehand. There were a few speeches. I spoke. Members of the UJS team spoke along with those that won the awards. It was very nice. And then there was like a party at the end. How many nominees do you have? 50, I would say. And how many awards do you actually give out? 11 awards. Who decides who the winners are? Some awards are decided by the organisations that sponsor them. There's an award that Chaplaincy give out. It's the Chaplaincy Developing JSOC of the Year. There's a CST award, the CST Campaign of the Year. And then there's also the Allen Senate Award. 
It's called Outstanding Contribution to Campus Life, a very inspiring individual for current student leaders, but also just for anybody involved in the Jewish community that learnt or has heard about what he's done, really look up to him as, as a, a figure. And for the people that were nominated for that award, I think really felt like they had achieved something to even be in the same bracket was really quite special for those people. Who sponsors all of this? Some awards are given by certain organisations. Some are UJS awards. What sort of organisations? I can read them out to you. So there's the Best Education Project. That's a UJS one. Interfaith Project of the Year. Then there's the Oliver Sweeney Event of the Year. There's a Social Action Project. There's Communication. Then there's the Alan Weber Israel Engagement Award, which is in partnership with UJA. There's Chaplaincy's Developing JSOC of the Year. There's CST Campaign of the Year. There's Dedication to Liberation Activism. There's JSOC of the Year. And there's Outstanding Contribution to Campus Life, which is in memory of Alan Senate. What are the benefits of having such a ceremony? For me, it was so special because there are so many Jewish students that do so many incredible things and they just don't get recognised. And I think the opportunity to celebrate more than anything else, to celebrate and give recognition to those that don't get it normally, is a very special opportunity. And I was so lucky to have been able to take part in it, to have spoken and to know most of the winners and the nominees, because these are future leaders of the Jewish and non-Jewish community in the future. And also I think it's good for us to show off a little bit and show what Jewish students do, because some of the stuff is absolutely outstanding. Let me just have a think about some of the past winners that you've had. Let's say last year's winners. What have they gone on to do? Do you know any more about them? Some of last year's winners are still students and still continuing. There's some people that win year in, year out at certain JSOCs for some incredible initiatives. I mean, we're talking ideas like radio stations that talk about Judaism from different perspectives. You've got innovative interfaith projects. You've got all kinds of, of different things that are different every year. And some of the winners have gone on to lead the community. I can't tell you all the winners from the previous years. I don't have them in front of me, but there are some that are no doubt in the 30 under 30. And there are no doubt individuals that are going to continue to be leaders of the community. Some that I'm sure will be future UJS presidents and things like that. I'm not asking you to name all of them, but do you have any names of the past winners that we may know about now? I'll give you one winner, Joel Salmon, who is now working at the Board of Deputies. Uh, He does some outstanding work. He's the the Parliamentary Affairs Officer, I think is his title officially. He does some outstanding work both outside and inside the Jewish community, and he won the Allen Senate Award last year. And that's just one example. Good example. Finally, who were the winners for this year? I apologise if some of the names are not pronounced correctly. The Best Education Project, which was presented by Sally Patterson, who goes to Bristol JSOC, was given to Liverpool JSOC for their Holocaust Memorial Day event. It attracted more than 270 guests to hear testimonials from survivors of the Holocaust. And... And they also spoke about the Rwandan genocide. Uh, So that was the best education project of the year. The Interfaith Project of the Year was given to Hannah Kaufman from LSE JSOC for ongoing dedication, including a full week of programming during National Interfaith Week. Then the Oliver Sweeney event of the year was given to Edinburgh JSOC for their Burns Ball. I believe it was incredible. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it. But it was interesting because it married Jewish and Scottish traditions and there was over 100 students that attended. So very, very impressive. Social Action Project of the Year was Nina Rauch from Cambridge for her project Pink Week, which is a breast cancer fundraising and awareness initiative that she started in celebration and memory of her mother, journalist Dina Rabinovich, who died from the disease, uh, I believe, in 2007. Then the Communication Project of the Year, which was given by our communication officer, Hannah Sharon, was given to Yoni Stone and Joel Cosmin from Oxford for their DJ, the DJing pair. They call themselves the Yoling Stones bringing an enjoyment of Jewish music to they had spoke to Jewish and non-Jewish students uh, on university radio. And they also presented at JSOC events. 
And then the Alan Weber Israel Engagement Award, which is in partnership with UJA, was given to Daniel Vonyak for securing funding, which is incredible, the stuff that he this what he did. He secured funding and he organized a high-tech insight trip to Israel for 40 non-Jewish students from his university who were interested in Israel's innovations in technology and their developments. Chapman C is developing JSOX of the year because it was given to two this year. It was won by Aberdeen JSOC and Exeter JSOC. CST campaign of the year was given to Jonathan Farrell. He's from Exeter Friends of Israel for Israel Peace Week. Dedication to Liberation Award was given to Rebecca Filer at Bristol JSOC for her work as campus representative for the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance, JOFA, and her leadership and initiative demonstrated at the UJS Liberation Conference. JSOC of the year, which I presented, was won jointly because it was, well, it was a vote at the evening and it happened to be there was a tie between Birmingham and LSE. So they were both joint winners of the JSOC of the year. Um, an outstanding contribution to campus life in memory of Alan Senate was Izzy Lenga. President of the Union of Jewish Students, Josh Seatler, talking to Tony Honigberg there about the Student Awards 2017. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, that part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today are retired audiobook reader Denise Assassin and Jewish radio broadcaster Daniel Musicant. The subject today is based on what we heard in the news with Viv earlier on. A new application has been designed to virtually recreate the temple in Jerusalem, giving users the chance to experience what life in the holy city might have been like in ancient times. The question is, does this help educate people in the religion, or does it run the risk of being disrespectful? Daniel, let's start with you. How would you feel about being given the chance to explore ancient Jerusalem through virtual reality? Part of me thinks it's actually really exciting and would bring to life something that we learn about but sort of can't visualise or comprehend. But I think it depends on how realistic it is, you know, how much research has gone into it. But also other people might think it is actually sort of quite disrespectful. I have to say I agree with you straight away. Yeah. I think it is quite disrespectful because I can remember back, which of course you can't because you're still young, but I can remember back to when Israel started. I was a schoolboy and I've never forgotten being told by my elders around me that now there is a Jewish state, the next thing that must happen is the temple must be rebuilt. And this is not the way of rebuilding well, the you temple. Could, no, you could say they virtually rebuilt it, haven't they? <laughs> yeah, virtually is the word, isn't it? It's not real. <laughs> but I've seen something uh, on the internet and it looks completely fake. You know, I was quite excited initially about the concept of looking at it. wasn't sure if it was disrespectful or not, but having seen something on the internet, I don't know if that's there's only one version of it, but it was look completely fake and artificial. But surely that's more to do with the technology available to them at the time, and in time, that's only going to improve and become a, more of a true reflection of what the temple was originally. But why don't they rebuild the temple as they said they would? Yeah, there's a little. That's the, there's, that's a, there's a mosque in the way. <laughs> it's, it's it's not so. But this at the moment is the closest we can get. I think, and I, I personally, I think it's a wonderful thing. Really you don't do. have to re replace the temple exactly where it was before, do you? Well, it has to be on the Dome of the Rock. 
it has to be on that point on the Holy of Holies where so yeah it has to be where where the mosque is Denise what do you think I think it's cynical I, I just can't, I can't understand it at all. Jerusalem's so beautiful. What do we want another temple for at this moment when we're trying to survive for our lives? So you think it's quite a good idea to have a virtual reality one? I don't think it's a good idea at all. Well, it's not <laughs> there, you see. It's, it's not there, but I don't think this is going to help educate anybody. And why do you think that? <laughs> because just to see a picture of what may be built in the future, how is that going to help children? I've got grandchildren there, and I don't think this would interest them at all. Because if it's not realistic at all, it is purely fiction anyway, unless you know, people really knew what it's like. But how can anyone know what it was like unless they've done some amazing research? Well, even if they did amazing research, there's no way that they could possibly find out what the original temple looked like. Well, there are <coughs> many sort of indications to what the temple was and what it looks like. It was There's a plenty of explanation in the Torah and Talmud about what the temple, the size of it, the shape of it, the what went on in there, how, how it was decorated. It's it's There's quite a lot of information we can garner from, from text. But how realistic do you think this virtual reality is or you know can be if it's improved over time? Well, I think at the moment it's at a stage where it's a prototype, really. It's the first type. You know, we haven't seen anything like this before. Now, I remember when I was on tour many years ago now in, in Israel, and I remember going to Jerusalem and growing up in Bournemouth where there wasn't a very strong sort of Jewish feel to Bournemouth. There's a community, but not like it is in northwest London or Manchester or somewhere. I remember seeing pictures of the Kotel, the Western Wall just on posters at Haida, for example, and being fascinated and then looking at it and thinking there's no temple there. And I remember going on this tour when I was a teenager and seeing the Western Wall and then just by it in one of the tunnels, they had a model of how the temple looked. And I couldn't take my eyes off it because I'd never seen what it looked like. So this is what the temple looks like. And was it anything like we're seeing now on the... Pretty much. It was a 3D, small model, scale version of the temple. How did they know what it looked like? Again, they'd taken information from texts that talk about what it looks like. The same in the Mishkan. You know, there's quite considerable detail explanation of, of what it looks like, how it had to be constructed, what materials they had to use. So if it can be made realistic... Couldn't it enhance people's education? And you know, so would it be disrespectful, or why would it be disrespectful? Well, I don't think it would. I think it would. It can only enhance people's education because but where else could enhance, we get that feel? How could it enhance people's education when it has no? There's nobody going to build it. I know everyone says in the future. Please God, someone will. But in in the sense that when you're trying to connect with something and it's only in text. It's quite hard to actually, when there's nothing tangible, and I know virtual reality is, is hardly tangible, but at least you can actually immerse yourself in the feeling of what it was like then, what the building looked like, where all the rituals took place. Before having a 3D virtual reality version, I've got no idea. I have a very good idea what the temple was like for one simple reason. When I was a child, my grandfather was a rabbi, and he talked about the temple, and he talked about it so well that I could see it in my head very, very well. And I'm sure my picture of it all those years ago was much clearer and much better than this modern idea of looking at 
pictures in 3D. But how many people are so lucky to have a grandfather that's so inspirational, who's a rabbi, that can explain that? Not many, I don't think. I so agree with Clive. I think that's why I prefer radio to television. If you have a radio play, you can imagine. Yes, that's exactly it. You put your finger right on it. Sure, but imagination's one thing. To actually see the detail of every stone in the building... But you might can't to know that that's a detail. That's might so who do you think it's going to appeal to, this virtual reality, if it actually does take off? Or who is it going to offend? I don't know who it, was, it would offend. It would. I think it would appeal to the masses. It would certainly appeal certainly to me. Appeal to you I would definitely go around mm. and have... Even now, I'd, I'd wander around and have a look and... <laughs> brings the stories to life. So just Jewish people or would it appeal to non-Jewish people as well? I I would imagine there would be huge parts of the Christian community would certainly have an interest in it. Do you think only the young? I mean, it wouldn't appeal to me at all. No, I don't think so. I think they're actually, unless I'm, I'm wrong, I do believe that they are using this for older people in care homes and, and they're actually really? giving them the experience that they could never have. So it's another way of connecting people who perhaps don't have mobility, perhaps can't leave the house, so they can actually experience going to, to see the Kotel. So do you think this could, this could extend to virtual reality tour of the whole old city of Jerusalem? The possibilities are endless. Eventually we'll be able to go anywhere in the world and just walk around the streets of any town, Except any city. Except you won't be going around the world because you'll be sitting in your own house room. Look at yes. this virtual reality. <laughs> it's not real. That's the point. But they try to make it is? real. I mean, it's a bit like dinosaurs. <laughs> They're constructing the dinosaurs with the pieces they find, but we don't really know what they were like. But surely it is... And this is, that's more real, I imagine, than this the temple. The sure. thing, some virtual reality things, can, you know, depends on the graphics, etc., can be extremely real, thinking about games, etc. But this, at the moment, isn't real. But in time, perhaps, the graphics and the research can be improved and it will look a bit more realistic I think compared to uh, something like a, a fantasy. Yeah, I think that's a terribly good point. I mean, I was in, in a department store on Oxford Street recently and I tried one of the virtual reality goggles that's about £500 for the whole system. This is the entire virtual reality experience, not just the looking through some goggles at a video. This is you're immersed in a room. And... There were moments where I like standing on the edge of a building where I actually felt I was going to fall off the edge of a building. I'm standing in, in a department store. But there was always that reminder that the graphics weren't that real. It was still a computer program. But it's the knowledge that this is just the beginning of it. But I think sometimes it can be made real. I went uh, ski jumping a couple of weeks ago. I'm sort of petrified of heights. And honestly, my heart was beating a hell of a lot just before I embarked on it. And I did feel, well, the first time, I felt completely scared and going down at goodness knows how fast. So I think... You virtual know, reality. Yeah, virtual reality, reality yeah. ski jumping, yes. Yeah. I wouldn't do it normally. But... Perhaps this does have the potential if it is made a bit more real. And as you said, it can be used for people who can't go to Jerusalem, so you can extend it to see the Kotel and other parts of Jerusalem, yeah. and also perhaps using Haders. But as I said before, whether it will offend yeah, some more religious people or not, you know, that's still How can it be disrespectful? I don't understand that. Just because it's very holy, are we supposed to know what it's like? I don't know. Maybe that's the only reason I'm thinking it could be disrespectful. I think if you... But if maybe you, it's more educational. If you believe, talking about it from a religious point of view, if you believe, as I was always taught to believe, 
that the thing that the Jews had to do was to rebuild the temple, then this is an example of what the whole world is going to be like, because they're not going to be bothered, even if they get the chance to to rebuild the temple. Why rebuild it when you can sit at home and look at it? Well, that's the argument with virtual reality at all. Why go out that's your house what I'm at all? Exactly and the lines are blurring And more and more reality. and more people aren't sitting at home until in the end they lose the use of their legs and arms <laughs> because they'll be looking at everything through virtual reality. Look, there are people already live most of their lives online where they have simulated lives, simulated characters in simulated communities... And they will spend say, 17, 18 hours a day online. I mean, there was the example How sad. a few years ago where a husband and wife got divorced because on their virtual game they both played, the husband had a virtual affair with another virtual <laughs> character and no. got divorced. That, real? <laughs> that was real. I mean, that... I agree. That is the danger of yes. virtual reality, that people could easily just immerse themselves entirely into a I mean, Jerusalem's world. so beautiful to look at and it's so perfect. I don't know why we'd want to look at something on a film. But can you get but, to Jerusalem? Well, um, I can. That's see, I go quite a lot. Yes. Not everybody no, can. I was, there, I was there last year and absolutely loved it, but I think virtual reality, you know, you're watching it. Can it be the same over and over again? Perhaps at the Kotel and people watch and things change and you know, anything can happen, anyone can come along. And it's a completely different experience to something which is pre-planned where you know, how many different sort of angles of the temple and feeling something, touching it and being there and, and soaking up the atmosphere. I'm not saying just the temple, I'm talking more about the Kotel and being in the old city of Jerusalem. It's not just virtual reality. If you go through the streets of London nowadays... Most people don't know where they're going because they're busy looking at their telephones at all the different things they can watch on their telephones. And they don't. Yes. They can walk into people and they're not interested in other people. They're only interested in what they can see on their telephones or they go home and they watch hundreds Absolutely. of television programs. Yes. It's, it's really very frightening. You may say that I'm behaving like a typical 20th century person, but nonetheless... Can you not see the dangers in this of people never going out of their houses, just looking at virtual reality? Of course I can see the dangers, but with mm. the dangers come the beauty as well. There's two sides to technology, always has been. There's a very positive side where we're advancing the world, we're creating new medicines, new cures, all, all kinds of new inventions. But at the same time, yeah, of course, we have to control it. It's so new. One, we don't know where it's going, and two, we don't know how people are going I to I love hearing yet. your enthusiasm about it. Well, I think it's well, just think it's wonderful. Different. I really do. Yeah. Something you said, Daniel, about Hader, and as soon as you said that, I thought, wow. Make, imagine, it, more inter make it more interesting, because we all used to hate quite. it. 20 kids in a Hader sitting with their virtual reality <laughs> goggles on, and the person, the teacher at the front, saying, OK, so we're walking along here. If you look to your left, that's where Aaron would have put on his robes and walk through. I mean, it just brings it to life instead of looking through a stale old book from the 1950s that's got no inspiration at all. You could be there and see it and a classroom full of people having the same experience. Yeah. It's wonderful. And I think, yeah, something like Hader, where people might want to sleep in. Okay, that was me years ago. <laughs> that was all this. <laughs> um, it will actually encourage people to learn and it will make learning far more exciting. Just think about one thing. Isn't it sad to think that most people in 20 years' time will be sitting looking at virtual reality when they could travel around the world, not just 
at the temple in Jerusalem, but also beautiful things in London. They can look round the world and sitting in their bedrooms or in their sitting room. I don't agree. I think I people agree. will always travel. People will always want the first-hand experience. But what this does, it means that the people that can't necessarily afford that or haven't can't physically do that also have the oh, opportunity. We'll let, you, we'll let you have the last word, Adam. There we are. <laughs> My thanks to our guests, retired audiobook reader Denise Atterson and Jewish radio broadcaster Daniel Musicant. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us and you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And don't forget those details are on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK. Say the night has been and gone. It's a magical night, nights. It's all about children and education. However, we seem to turn a bit nasty when it comes to dealing with the wicked son. I mean, the whole point of education is to try and engage people and embrace them and bring them in. Yet we tell the wicked son we're going to blunt his teeth. Haket Shinov. Rabbi Sachs, though, said the most wonderful thing once, which I've always remembered. Which, in essence, why do the rabbis use the phrase Haket Shinov, blunt his teeth, with the wicked son? What's the lesson they're trying to teach him and us? And we find that phrase twice in the Tanakh. One in Jeremiah and one in Ezekiel. Both times talking as a reference how parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And in essence, Rashi says that the children are basically suffering because their parents' iniquity. And Rabbi Sachs says, therefore, in this case, is the wicked son is appealing to us, saying, what do you expect, mum? What do you expect, dad? What did you show me? Have you ever inspired me? Have you ever shown me the beauty of Judaism? What is it to you? You're a hypocrite. I'm a wicked person, I'm a rasha, because no one ever showed me the beauty and the relevance and the integrity of Judaism. And in some ways, Pesach gives us a message from the rasha. We have to make sure when we teach our kids, we teach them, we inspire them with Jewish living in the 21st century. Someone they will grow to love, someone they will grow to live, and someone they will grow to pass on to their kids. The rasha is there at our table. But he's reminding us what we have to do. We have to inspire ourselves, our communities, and the entire Jewish people. But it starts in the home. And Sedanite is a great place to start. I think my parents had a slightly different attitude towards teaching me Judaism. They sort of taught me enough to be intrigued by it and then let me discover what I know now, even to the extent that both my sister and I teach them things. Well, at least we try. Thank you very much to Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi UK with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, American political commentator Carol Gould, MasterChef finalist Emma Spitzer. Don't forget her new book, Fress. Thanks also to Josh Seekler for telling us about the UJS Student Awards 2017 and also to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers Adam Bradley, Sue Greenberg and Tony Honigberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the link to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. And let it be known that we'll dedicate this episode to the late Sharon Berger. 
I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.